We're going to turn our attention now to God's Word, and in particular, the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We are working through a rather brief series of messages based on Philippians 1.27, which says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We picked up on that little expression, whatever happens, all kinds of stuff happens in this world in which we live. We don't need reminding of that. We're all well aware of it. Many of us are going through all kinds of happenings at this present time. The key, of course, is how we react to whatever happens. And of course, more often than not, the things that happen to us do not send us a little postcard in advance. On such and such a time, this is what will happen to you. The things that happen to us happen without warning, and our responses very often are instinctive and intuitive. What, therefore, we have built in is going to a very large extent to determine what comes out. And that is the kind of thing that we've been looking at in Philippians. Whatever happens. In this particular passage, we will note that the Apostle Paul puts great emphasis on the fact that he presses on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so the theme today is, whatever happens, press on. Whatever happens, keep on keeping on. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. He is making no apology to the fact that he's telling them what he's already told them. That is, that they need to go on rejoicing in the Lord. No apologies. This needs to be constantly reiterated because it is a safeguard to them. Having said that, he then makes a dramatic change. He is concerned about the people who are coming into this new Christian community and insisting that the new believers must adhere to all the minute tenets of Judaism if they are to be genuine believers. Among other things, they must go through the rite of circumcision. And Paul has some very harsh words to say to those people. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. Circumcision, of course, was the sign and the seal given to the Jewish people that they were the covenant people of God. Paul now broadens out that idea of the special covenant people and says it's not reserved for the Jewish people. It is for all those who have come to know God in Christ Jesus. It is we who are the circumcision. Then he gives three characteristics of those who are genuinely in a covenant relationship with God. Number one, we worship by the Spirit of God. Number two, we glory in Christ Jesus. Number three, we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he begins to pick up on that third one. When he says we have no confidence in the flesh, what he is saying is we have come to the conclusion that it is not through self-effort, it is not through what we can achieve that righteousness is given to us as something we have earned. We fully recognize, says the Apostle Paul, those of us who are truly the covenant people of God, that we worship God by the Spirit, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we do not believe that we earn our own salvation. Then he adds, if anybody has reason for confidence in their own achievements, it is I. And then he goes into details, the second part of verse 4. 
If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I have considered loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I continue to consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, this is a very rich passage of Scripture. It contains many, many things that we could quite profitably spend at least three hours looking into, but I promise you we won't. I'll try to cram it into the remaining minutes at my disposal. So fasten your seatbelts, and I will take a deep breath. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is insisting on here. He is insisting that it is imperative that those who have embarked on the spiritual journey Press on to completion. Many years ago, when Judy, our daughter, was in college, she was an inveterate runner. And in those days, I was running a lot too, although I would never regard myself as being an inveterate runner. She asked me one day, would you run a 10,000-meter race with me? And so I said, sure. And so we went down to the lakefront at the appointed time, and we discovered that 24,000 other people were going to run this 10,000-meter race. At the front of the 24,000 people who were all lined up were some professional runners. They had been paid an appearance fee so that they would run, and so the rest of us lesser mortals could say, well, I once ran with France Shorter, or whatever, something like that. Behind them were a lot of very, very good amateur runners. There were some Olympians there and some very impressive college runners. And then behind them were some very, very serious recreational runners, and then behind them some serious joggers, then not very serious joggers, and then some joggers, and then some people who could hardly, by the stretch of imagination, be called joggers. And then behind, there were a group of people, the Lord only knows why they were there, and then behind them was a most interesting group of people. They were there just for kicks. It was very obvious. There was one group of five, they had a bed on wheels, and one of, was going to push at each corner and one was going to lie on the bed and then they were going to rotate when they were tired. And uh, there was a group there 
they were emulating the popular advertisement at the time for Fruit of the Loom. You remember, they had that silly thing where some little men were dressed up as plums and bunches of grapes and bananas and things like that. These clowns were, were dressed up like that to run 6.2 miles. And then there was a guy on stilts, there was a, a group that were going to run backwards. And because it was Milwaukee, there was a guy there dressed up as a beer bottle. Well, the gun sounded and uh, off we went. It took some of us quite a long time to even get to the starting line. And then you could hear behind us all the laughing and the shouting and the exhilaration and the fun that was going on with these people at the back. And for the first mile, you could hear all kinds of stuff going on. For the second mile, things quietened down a bit and you could hear the runners talking quietly to each other. And for the third mile, the talking quietened down a bit and, and you could hear the flap, flap, flap of feet. And then the fourth mile, uh, you could hear heavy breathing. And then the fifth mile, there wasn't much going on, so you could actually hear the birds singing. And then the sixth mile, you could hear people praying quietly, Lord, get me through this, and I promise I'll never, ever do it again. <laughs> and then you had about 0.2 of a mile after that, and you passed the finishing line, and they gave you a drink of water and a T-shirt that was too small and a printout <laughs> of where everybody finished. Well, the first thing you did was look to see what, where you finished, what your time was. And then, as a matter of interest, I looked to see where these other people were. There was no mention of the people on the bed. The beer bottle was last seen leaning over a picket fence. <laughs> the reason there was no mention of the guys on the bed, a wheel had come off the bed and they quit. The guys dressed up as the fruit of the loom, the guy with a plum outfit on, it had split and he didn't want to run like that anymore and his friends came out in sympathy. The guy on his stilts fell off his stilts and the people running backwards kept tripping over their own feet and they weren't mentioned. It was very interesting. At the beginning of the race, they got all the attention. At the end of the race, they weren't mentioned. The moral of the story is this. You can goof off as much as you like at the beginning of the race. It doesn't count. What counts is you keep pressing on and finish the race. Do you get my drift? Now, this is the thrust of what Paul is saying. Now, he is absolutely adamant that in the Christian community, it is imperative that whatever the issues might be, whatever the obstacles that get in the way, he is looking for people who, whatever happens, will press on. Now, it all started with the Apostle Paul when he had a defining moment in his life. Up until that time, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And he had had a very, very honorable and remarkable career. We don't have time to go into the details. But then he had run across a movement in Judaism that troubled him deeply. There were stories circulating that a certain carpenter of Nazareth was claiming to be Messiah. This Messiah had been crucified. But his followers insisted on still believing that he was Messiah because they said that this carpenter who had been crucified had risen again from the dead and in the very fact that he had been raised from the dead, there was evidence, clear, unmistakable evidence that he was proved by the resurrection to be who he claimed to be, Messiah, the Son of God. Saul of Tarsus could not tolerate this teaching at all. 
Now, he didn't just stand by. He decided something had to be done about it. And so he started a crusade to go after the followers of Christ. He attacked them in every conceivable way that he could. He finished it with blood on his hands. He was implicated in the murder of some of these people. People being torn away from their families. People being thrown into jail. He was absolutely, adamantly, totally opposed to the whole idea of Jesus being Messiah and his followers. He was convinced that this pernicious, cancerous growth in Judaism had to be incised and he was committed to doing it. Then one day on his way to Damascus, he had a defining moment. He was confronted with what to him was incontrovertible evidence that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. When he saw that information, he came to the conclusion that therefore, if Jesus was risen from the dead, that was evidence that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God incarnate, the Messiah. He then had to explore if Jesus was the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, who had risen from the dead, how could he explain the death of this Messiah? Immediately, his understanding of the Old Testament with which he was thoroughly committed and thoroughly understood blossomed into new life and he recognized that all the great tradition of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament had been pointing to that ultimate sacrifice when Jesus would die on the cross to take away the sins of the whole world. He had died on the cross, as the Apostle Paul eventually put it, that was the former soul of Tarsus, he loved me and gave himself for me. He came to understand that Jesus was Savior and Lord and he fell hurriedly off his horse. He knelt in the dust of the Damascus road and he asked the great question, Lord, Lord, what will you have me to do? The defining moment where he comes to a discovery that the Christ whom he had rejected was actually the Savior and Lord. And he yielded his life to him. And as a result, he now insists to the Philippians, you must go on rejoicing in the Lord. Now notice what has happened. He starts out by rejecting Jesus. Then he recognizes the Christ. And now he spends his life rejoicing in the Lord. A defining moment. Now this leads to a decisive action on his part. The decisive action that requires a total radical reevaluation of everything that he has stood for up until that time. And you would remember in the reading that we had a few moments ago that basically this reevaluation was as follows that he now counted everything that previously he regarded as profit, now as loss. And everything that previously he had regarded as a loss, he now calculates as profit. Now, those of you who are into bookkeeping, those of you who are into investments, you recognize that this is a radical reevaluation. He adds up everything that he regarded as to his profit, and he writes it off as loss, and in the same breath, he takes everything that he's regarded as a loss and he regards it as a profit. This man 
has a renewed mind. He sees God entirely differently. He sees himself with new eyes. He looks at the world from an entirely different perspective. Life takes on an entirely different meaning. This man has been thoroughly converted. Now he's saying what has happened to me is just the beginning. And what is important is that I press on to take to its logical conclusion this radical re-evaluation that has taken place in my life. Now, this whole idea of him taking the things that he regarded as profit and regarding them now as loss. He doesn't mean that the previous things of his life are all worthless. On the contrary, there are many things in his previous life that are profoundly significant. For instance, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. What that meant was that his believing Jewish parents took him on the eighth day and introduced him as a child of the covenant. He says that he was proud uh, to be a member of the race of Israel. There was a great nationalistic pride there, which is most appropriate. He had taken trouble to sort out his heritage and he was member of the tribe of Benjamin. In addition to that, he had decided that if he was going to be a Jew, he was going to be a real one. And so having explored the different tenets of the Jewish faith, he had opted for the most strict, the most devout, the most serious sect of Judaism, and he had become a Pharisee. He wasn't just a theoretical Pharisee. On the contrary, he had decided that if he was going to be somebody who took the law seriously, he was going to dot every I and he was going to cross every T. And as far as legalistic righteousness was concerned, he would be on the top of the heap. And because he saw this pernicious thing called Christianity coming to bear, he devoted his considerable intellect and energy to the extermination of it. And all these things, he said, had merit in them. Now he says, I am not simply writing those things off. What I'm saying is this. The new discovery that I made did not make these things worthless. It's just compared to the new discovery that I made that I counted them as lost. Is that complicated? Let me give you an example. Many years ago, Jill and I traveled to South Africa. We've been there many, many times. It's one of our favorite places to go and to minister. On this particular occasion, we went to a small town. The arrangements had been made for us to go and have a week's ministry there. And as is often the case when you do that sort of thing, you arrive at the airport, you have no idea who'll meet you, where you're going to stay, what's going to happen. This is the principle upon which itinerant preachers operate. Actually, there are two principles. Where he leads me, I will follow. What they feed me, I will swallow. That's, <laughs> that's how I operated for years and years and years. That's why I finished up like this. Well, now, on this particular occasion, uh, a little lady met us. She was rather agitated and excited, and she burbled on at great length. And among other things, she said that we were staying in her home, and we thanked her very much for that. And she said, then, would you like to see the whole, H-O-L-E, 
would you like to see the whole? I had no idea what she was talking about. So being terribly British, I said, we would love to. Thank you so much. And uh, she said, would you like to see it before you see where you're staying or after? I said, could we go right away? And I knew she wanted to take us right away. And so she said, yes, let's go right away. So we got into her little car and uh, we started uh, chugging along the road there. And she went on at great length about the hole. It was one mile in circumference at the top. It was hundreds of feet deep. You couldn't see the bottom of it because it had filled up with water. It was dug uh, by Hundreds and thousands of men who came from all over the world to dig it. They went through terrible privation. There was famine. There was disease. There was epidemics. But they kept digging. They used little hand implements. And they took all the earth out that they were digging out of this biggest man-made hole in the world. In little leather buckets on a great system of pulleys. And I was so intrigued. I had never heard of a hole like this. Eventually, we arrived at the hole, and it was just as she said. It was a magnificent hole. I stood there, and I said, as holes go, that is a hole. <laughs> then she said, it used to be a hill, you know. It used to be a hill. And I said, no, I didn't know that. Oh, yes, she said, it used to be a hill. Oh, well, I thought this is really quite intriguing. Men come from all over the world. They risk famine, they risk disease, they risk all kinds of epidemics in order to get their little implements and their little leather buckets and their system of pulleys and dig a hole. I said, why in the world would anybody come from somewhere else in the world to dig a hill and make it into the biggest hole in the world? And she said, oh, one day some little boys were playing on the hill and they were throwing pebbles to each other and catching the pebbles and throwing them back to each other. And a gentleman walking past just happened to notice the boys doing this, and he noticed that the boys were throwing the pebbles because as they went through the air, the sun glinted on the pebbles. So he caught one of the pebbles, and it was a diamond. And word got out that this hill was full of diamonds. And so people arrived from all over the world, and the Kimberley Diamond Mine was born. We saw it. Now the whole point of the story is this, that that little piece of real estate was very valuable to those little boys. It was their playground. They loved it. Probably generation after generation had played there and they'd played with these cute little pebbles and they'd thrown them around and this had been fun. And then one day somebody discovered, hey folks, this is a diamond mine. And that which had been important to them now they count as loss compared to the excellency, the surpassing excellency of the knowledge. Hey, folks, this is a diamond mine. Now, says the Apostle Paul, all my heritage, all my religious background, all that I learned as a kid, I'm simply telling you this, it was not worthless. In fact, when he wrote the letter to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 1, he asked this question. What then is the profit to a Jew? And what value is there in circumcision? And his answer is much in every way. It's profoundly significant. Let me show you how. The knowledge of the Ten Commandments will not give you the way to be reconciled to God. You can say, well, my parents taught me the Ten Commandments and I learned the Ten Commandments and I memorized the Ten Commandments and I lived by the Ten Commandments. Now, you could say that 
even if you had adopted that principle, the reality of it is this, you would have broken them somewhere. Like you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. But you can say, I've lived by the 10 commandments. Does that make the 10 commandments valueless? No, they are immensely valuable, not as a means of being made right with God, but as a means of showing you the sinfulness of your own sin. And when you discover the sinfulness of your own sin through the Ten Commandments, at that point you look for a way where you might be forgiven. And Paul, writing to the Galatians, says that the law is like a schoolmaster that trains you until in the end you graduate and you're brought to Christ. The law will teach you the sinfulness of your sin, not in order that you might be made right with God through keeping the law, but in order that you might come to Christ and discover in Christ the forgiveness is available to you, not through your own efforts, but through the grace and mercy of Christ. So he puts in contrast the righteousness that is my own that comes through the works of the law than the righteousness that is of God by faith. You know something? I've preached in Milwaukee now for years. And I'm more convinced today than I was on the day that I came. The hardest message to get across in Milwaukee is this. You are not made righteous by your own efforts. You can only be made righteous by the mercy and grace of God mediated through the death and resurrection of Christ. People in Milwaukee still have got this idea there's no such thing as a free lunch. Now, I like that attitude. I really do. That was one of the things that was appealing to me when we were invited to come to old Milwaukee. I looked around and I said, you know, there's some good, old-fashioned, hard-nosed, hard-working, old-time Europeans around here. And I figured that those are the kind of people I'd come out from and they were the kind of people I'd like to be with. They put up with the bad weather. They support the Packers when they're abysmal. <laughs> they keep on keeping on. They're tough. They stick with it. They've got some principles and they're not looking for a handout. And there's no such thing as a free lunch, but it backfires on these dear old Milwaukee people. You know why? Because the reality of it is this, that there is no such thing as hard-nosed, hard-earned righteousness. You can't do it. It's the hardest message to get across to Milwaukee. And the Apostle Paul says the time came for me when I began to realize that all the heritage and all the things that had been factored into my life could never, ever make me right with God. Not that they were worthless, just that compared to discovering that Christ crucified and risen is the basis of my righteousness, simply in comparison to him makes all the rest worthless. Now he says, if I've counted all that was profit now as loss, I have now decided that all that was loss is to my profit. What was lost to him? Christ. 
No, he wouldn't give him the time of day. He was utterly, relentlessly, totally, mercilessly opposed to Christ. And now he says, listen, what really matters now is that I know Christ. The word that he uses to describe knowing Christ is, is a very strong word in the original language. Epignosis. It means to know intimately, to know experimentally, to know experientially. It doesn't mean to have a casual acquaintance with. It doesn't mean to have some information about. It means to have entered into an intimate sea of relationship with. The thing that really matters to him now is an intimate relationship with Christ. Now, this is hard sometimes for people to grasp. Let me explain it to you this way. It is possible to have learned as a kid that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Okay? Well, it's one thing to learn that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's an entirely different thing to say, if Jesus is the Savior of the world, that means I'm part of the world, therefore he could be my Savior. I need saving. I haven't been saved, but if Jesus could be my Savior, and I need saving, and I haven't been saved, I need to be saved. Therefore, he says, if I ask him, he will save me. I'll ask him, guess what? I'm saved. Now, it isn't just knowing about Jesus. Now it's knowing Jesus as my Savior. It's possible to say, well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Well, you can believe that. vast majority of people in this area believe that. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's an entirely different matter, however, to say, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, I wonder what sins of mine necessitated him dying on the cross. And I need to confront my own sinfulness. And then I need to ask the question, what possible difference could Jesus dying on the cross 2,000 years ago, thousands of miles away from here, what possible significance can that have to my sinfulness now? And I've got to think the thing through and I've got to come to this conclusion that if in some remarkable way God was gathering the sins of the whole world, including mine, past, present and future, and he was reckoning them to Christ, and Christ becomes a substitutionary offering for the sins of the whole world. That means that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And now God says, because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, your sins can be forgiven. And so I say, oh gee, then I will look simply at my sins. I will admit their sins and stop saying there were mistakes and stop blaming everybody that I'm a victim. And I'll saying, my sin is sin, and it cost Jesus the cross, and I'm so incredibly grateful. And God, if you, because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, are willing to forgive me, I ask you, forgive me. And God says, done. Now I know Jesus as the Savior from my sins. And I've moved from knowing about him to knowing him. Now, says the Apostle Paul, the important thing for me is to embrace the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he goes further. He says, the thing that really matters to me now is that I may gain Christ. That word gain means I want to amass more and more of the merits of Christ into my life. More and more of the benefits of Christ. I want to discover more and more of Christ. And then he says, and I want to be found in Christ. That's a legal term. If you go into court, the charges are read. The evidence is given. The jury is dismissed. They consider, and then they come back. And what do they do? They give their findings. And you will either be found guilty or found not guilty. And Paul says, now that I know Christ, the big thing for me is that one day on the great judgment day, the jury of the Trinity will go out having heard the evidence and they'll come back. And the big thing for me is that then on the great day, I will be found in Christ. And to be found in Christ, having continually amassed more and more of the discovery of Christ, is what it means now that I have made this radical reevaluation. But then he goes on, he says, and I want to know Christ in his sufferings. And I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. I was talking to one of the brothers who was in the congregation yesterday evening. And we were talking about cancer and what cancer is doing in his home at this time. He was explaining all the difficulties and the pain and the struggles and the anguish that is involved with cancer. But then he said this, the amazing thing about it, Stuart, is this. That as we've been moved into this area of our lives that we didn't want and we don't welcome and we never thought would happen to us, it's pushing us into a depth of experience of Christ we never knew before. You see, the tragedy of our lives is this, that sometimes we can get them so delightfully, so smoothly organized that we can move imperturbably through them and we don't need Christ. We can do it. What he wants us to do, of course, is intentionally move out of comfort zone onto risk's edge where we recognize inadequacy and discover his adequacy. If that doesn't happen then eventually and inevitably we will be introduced to facets of this fallen world that will impinge on us. And some of the horror and some of the pain and some of the anguish, some of the dysfunction and some of the dis-ease of fallenness, all of which was wrapped up in the sufferings that Christ bore on the cross, will impinge upon us and we find ourselves caught up in the sufferings of Christ. And as we're caught up in the sufferings of Christ, guess what? Then we're given the chance to know him in the power of his resurrection. Because up until that time, we weren't particularly interested because we could do it on our own. And then he said, this one thing I do. This one thing I do. I'm not spending a lot of time looking into the past. All the glories of the past all the mistakes of the past, all the disasters of the past, they're all past, they're done with, they've been dealt with by Christ. What I'm doing is I'm looking where I'm going. And I'm looking for the day when one day I will be with Christ at the finishing line 
and he will give me the eternal prize. And I realize that the upward call is the one thing that I keep in mind and I'm pressing on. Whatever happens, I'm pressing on to know him more fully, more richly, more realistically until the day I'm with him. I went to watch one of my grandsons run across country race. And the guns sounded and off these kids went and they, they went through the hills and the dales. And then eventually, after 3.1 miles, they came to the finishing point. And there were a couple of judges there. And one of them was wearing a black and white shirt and he got a, an orange armband on his arm. And he was standing on the finishing line and he was pointing because, you see, the kids couldn't necessarily get the perspective of exactly where the finishing line was. And there he stood with this orange finger pointing to the finishing line. And I thought to myself, Jesus is standing at the finishing line and he's got an orange armband on. You didn't realize that. Jesus wears an orange armband and he's pointing his finger at the finishing line, but with the other finger, he's beckoning and he's saying, come on, <laughs> come on guys, you can do it. You can do it. Now I noticed at this cross country race that the kids were running, there were a lot of parents there who were carrying 30 or 40 extra pounds and they were yelling and shouting at their kids and telling the kids what to do and in my opinion those kids should have stopped and said dad why don't you get rid of 30 or 40 pounds and you try running and then they could have carried on a little bit further it's one thing for dad 30 or 40 pounds overweight to be encouraging it's an entirely different thing to be an encourager and an empowerer and Jesus stands with this orange armband, which he does wear, pointing at the finishing line. With the other hand, he's beckoning and saying, come on, come on, guys, you can make it. And listen, and at the same time, through the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to be able to do what he's encouraging us to do. And what he's encouraging us to do is very simple. Whatever happens, whatever happens, press on. Now, the interesting thing about it in this one, is, well, not the interesting thing, there's all kinds of interesting things here, is that verse 15 says this, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And there's the application. Let me ask you one question. There are many questions we could ask about all of us taking such a view of things, but I'll, I'll limit it to one. It is this. What is the one dominant thing in your life? What is the one dominant thing in your life? Because remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> but the main thing about the main thing being the main thing is that you know what the main thing is. What is it? What is it? Paul would tell you in a flash, he said, I'll tell you what the one thing is. Forgetting what's behind, I press towards the mark of the heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Well, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was coming to know Christ. And ever since, I've been getting to know him better. And I'm going to press on whatever happens to deepen in my relationship with him until one day I cross the finishing line. And he says, well done. Welcome home. Whatever happens, press on. Let's pray. Oh Lord.
could be various reactions in our own hearts to this. Many of us listening on radio, many of us sitting here in the auditorium, all of us different before you. Some of us will allow this to just be like water off a duck's back. And we'll go back to just living the way we want to live our lives. Others of us would say, Lord, I've been one of those hard-working, hard-nosed, determined, set-jaw kind of people who puts up with the weather and does his job and treats people rightly and pays his taxes and expects to get to heaven on the basis of it. And what you're telling me is that all these things that have been admirable really don't amount to anything because it's Christ who alone can make me fit for heaven and introduce me to reconciliation with God. And I have to eat my pride and I have to humble myself and I have to ask you, Lord, to give me what I'll never earn and grant me what I'll never deserve, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Seeing that's all wrapped up in you, Lord Jesus, obviously I need to know you better. And I want you to help me to press on with this one thing in mind, to head for the finishing line and to run the race well and to finish it well. And Lord, some of us today, we got into the race, but somewhere along the line, the wheel came off. So we quit. And some of us, we got ourselves all dressed up in our fancy evangelical dress clothes, but then the costume split. So we quit. And some of us got so messed up that we started running it backwards, began to trip over our own feet, we skinned our evangelical shins and we lost heart. The Lord, pick us up and dust us off and set us on our way with this simple determination that in your grace, whatever happens, we'll press on. Hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.